We finished our series through Nehemiah last Sunday. We're going to start a new series after school starts. Until then, we're going to just do something different each Sunday. Um, and then that starts this morning. Albert Einstein was considered the greatest theoretical physicist of all time. The words Einstein and genius are synonymous. And Einstein said, God doesn't play dice. Question, what does that statement mean? God doesn't play dice. Dice is a part of a game of chance. And to say that God doesn't play dice means that God doesn't operate according to chance. God doesn't get lucky. Because everything God does, He does on purpose. That means no one is an accident. The fact we were born wasn't a mistake or an unexpected surprise. Some children are planned and some aren't. But even if our parents didn't plan us, God did. Someone said there are illegitimate parents, but there are no illegitimate children. From God's perspective, no child is unplanned. And even in cases where a child is born to unmarried parents, God's purpose for that child takes into account human error and sin and doesn't permit it to interfere with his purpose for that child. Before we were conceived inside our mother, we were first conceived in the mind of God. He thought of us first. It is not fate or chance, or luck, or coincidence that we're alive at this moment. No, we're alive because God wanted us to be alive. Isaiah 44, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, it is He who will help you. I happened to see a recent video clip of a pregnant woman. Notice I said a pregnant woman, not a pregnant man. A snarky, snotty female law professor from UC Berkeley has just testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee, and she said that to argue that a man cannot get pregnant is a transphobic statement that causes violence towards transgender people. I'm sorry. We don't accommodate delusion here. Accusing us of being transphobic, calling us names, does nothing to alter the scientific reality that a man cannot get pregnant. Period. End of sentence. That's a fact, Jack. I understand gender dysphoria, but I'm tired of this foolishness called transgenderism. And so this pregnant woman was in a group protesting this recent Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. It seemed as though, it seemed, as she could be in her third trimester. I mean, she was, she was out there. And she wore something that exposed her pregnant midsection. It was not attractive. And she had written across her stomach the words, quote, it's not a baby yet. Question, if it's not a baby, then what is it? Because God only forms humans in a woman's uterus. 
Jeremiah 1, verse 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This was the famous prophet Jeremiah. God said to Jeremiah, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God knew Jeremiah before Jeremiah was Jeremiah. Because in his omniscience, God can do that. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. The word sanctified means to set something apart. God sanctified Jeremiah, meaning God set Jeremiah apart to do something special. And then God mentions that something special. Notice, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. God said, Jeremiah, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. That happened before Jeremiah was conceived, before Jeremiah was born. Um, that happened during the months he was still inside his mother. Sometime this fall, we're scheduling a formal ordination service, something this church probably has never experienced, and probably most people in this room have never attended an actual formal ordination service, we will be ordaining Chris Gray to the gospel ministry. And it will be a special Sunday evening service. There will be other pastors here who will be part of the ordination council. And um, the entire service will be devoted to doing that. It's going to be a fantastic time. So once we announce the date, please, please plan to be here. Notice Jeremiah was also ordained. He was ordained to be a prophet. The difference is Jeremiah had a prenatal ordination. Just as in Jeremiah's case, God knew you before you were you, because he planned you. No one is an accident. Psalm 139, verse 15. The psalmist said, my frame, in ancient Hebrew, frame means someone's anatomical structure or body. My body was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. We were all made in secret inside our mothers. God prescribed every single detail of who we are. He chose, deliberately chose our genetic code, our ethnicity, our intelligence quotient, our skin color, our eye color, our hair color, for those of us who have that. God chose every other minute detail of who we are. God custom made us according to his prescribed and predetermined design. He also determined the talents and abilities we would possess and the uniqueness of our personalities. Because God made us for a reason. He decided when we would be born and where we would be born. He determined our size at birth. I weighed eight pounds and nine ounces. God actually planned the exact extent of our life in advance. He chose the exact time and moment of our birth, and he chose the exact date and time and moment of our death, and we cannot change that. Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes, meaning God's eyes, saw my substance being yet unformed. This substance would be the beginning human embryo. The, an unborn child in the first trimester inside his mother is an embryo. Uh, in the second and third trimesters, a preborn child is considered a fetus. Uh, 
Verse 16 continues, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God also planned where we would be born. God planned where we would live. Our nationality is not an accident. It's not just good fortune that we were born here in the United States instead of communist China or Saudi Arabia or North Korea or Siberia. No, God planned all of that for his purpose. Acts 17 verse 26 and he, God, made, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined, God has determined, their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. This word dwellings means our residence. So God has determined the location of our actual residences. And since this verse is a comment on nations, this phrase, God has determined the boundaries of their dwellings or residences, means God has intended that nations and countries have boundaries. People, boundaries are borders. So these open borders, as the progressive left wants, would essentially erase those boundaries that God has intended a nation to have. That's the reason we should secure our borders, especially our southern border. The point is that nothing in our life is arbitrary. It has all been designed for a purpose, regardless of the circumstances surrounding our birth, regardless of who our parents are or were. God has a definite plan in creating us. It doesn't matter if our parents were good, bad, or indifferent. God knew that particular set of parents possessed just the precise genetic combination to create the custom us that he had in mind. Our parents have the exact DNA combination God wanted us to have. God never does anything on accident, and he has never made a mistake. He has a reason for all the things he has ever created. And every human was created with a divine purpose in mind. And God is not haphazard. He planned it all with great precision. The more physicists, biologists, and other scientists learn about the universe, the better we understand how it is uniquely suited for our existence, how it is custom-made with the exact specifications that make human life possible. Dr. Michael Denton, Senior Research Fellow in Human Molecular Genetics at the University of Otago in New Zealand, has concluded, quote, all the evidence available in the biological sciences supports the core proposition of traditional natural theology, that the cosmos is a specially designed whole with life and mankind as a fundamental goal and purpose. A whole in which all facets of reality, from the size of the galaxies to the thermal capacity of water, have their meaning and explanation in this central fact. It's interesting that the Bible essentially said the same thing some 27 centuries earlier. Notice Isaiah 45, verse 18, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, meaning God didn't create this earth for nothing, 
who formed it, meaning who formed the earth, to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other, meaning there is no other God. Isaiah said God created the earth to be inhabited with the human species. And the question is, why did God do that? Why did God go to all the trouble to create this unique earth just for us? I believe because he is a God of love. This might be difficult to understand, but God made us so he could love us. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4, verse 8, that God is love. God is love. It doesn't say God has love, but that God is love. Love is part of the essence of who God is. It's one of his attributes and characteristics as God. I just read a bizarre article called 40 Reasons Love Doesn't Exist. Just more evidence that our culture has lost its mind. 40 reasons love doesn't exist. I argue if love doesn't exist, then God doesn't exist because God is love. And because God is love, he created us so that he might have someone to love. He created us to become the objects of his love. It's true some people reject the idea that there is a God that's called atheism, and atheism is on the increase. I read about one such atheistic college professor that is now so common in higher education. Uh, this man was so dogmatic about the non-existence of God that he told his class he was going to prove to them that there is no God. He said, God, if you actually exist, I have a challenge. I want you to prove your existence to this class. I want you to knock me off this platform. You have 15 minutes to prove your existence to me and to this class. Go ahead, God. Knock me off this platform. Ten minutes passed, and he continued to taunt God, saying, Here I am, God. I haven't left. I'm still waiting. If you're there, knock me off this platform. Nothing happened until about 13 minutes into the countdown. And a huge football player, about 6'5", weighing 285, walked past the open classroom door. He heard this atheist professor rant and rage against God in this tirade, and he heard this challenge, so he charged through the door unannounced, tackled this professor full force, <laughs> knocked him completely off the platform, and actually knocked him across the room. The professor got up after 30 seconds or so because he was so disorientated and said to the student athlete, are you crazy? Why did you do that? This football player said, God was busy, so he sent me. <laughs> Understand that if there were no God, we would just be accidents. We would just be accidents, the result of astronomical random chance in the universe. And if there were no God, then I should stop this sermon at this point because there would be no reason to continue. Because if there were no God, life would have no purpose and no meaning and no significance. If there were no God, then there would be no hope outside of our abbreviated time on this earth. But there is a God. 
And this God made us for a reason. And our life has profound meaning. And we can discover that meaning and purpose when we have made God the reference point of our lives. John Piper is probably a familiar name. Dr. Piper is a popular evangelical author. And he published a book some time ago entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. Don't waste your life. That's excellent advice. One of the finest men I ever pastored, he's deceased now, he said to me once after a service, I'm not afraid to die, but I am ashamed to die because my life has been a waste. I immediately disagreed. I vehemently disagreed because his self-assessment was, couldn't have been more inaccurate. He was an outstanding man, but that's still how he felt about himself. And wasting my life is the one thing I'm afraid of most. But unless we understand our purpose, then our life is going to be wasted. The Beatles released their album, Rubber Soul, in December 1965 and sang John Lennon's popular song called Nowhere Man. Most of us have heard that song. The lyrics said, he's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like you and me? Contrary to an increasing number of Facebook posts, the lyrics to that song, Nowhere Man, were not intended to be a prophetical comment on our current president. That's, that's, that's not nice. He's not a nowhere man, except when he is, and that's most of the time he's awake. But contrary to that song, God didn't create us to be a nowhere man. Man does have a purpose, and that purpose has been decided for us. We don't create that purpose, and then we don't define that purpose ourselves. It is outside of us. It is real, and it is objective. God is the creator of all that there is, and everything God has created has a purpose, and that includes us. Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made all for himself. The New Living Translation reads, The Lord has made everything for his own purposes. Proverbs 19, verse 21. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that can also be translated as the Lord's purpose, that will stand. Once more, the New Living Translation reads, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. That statement means God's purpose, God's particular unique purpose for us, overrides our own personal plans. That could be the origin of the phrase, we plan and God laughs. I agree. We should plan. Uh, it is productive to plan. It is wise to plan, but we should also remember that God has the prerogative to change those plans because God has a purpose for us, and sometimes our, our, our own personal plans don't fit into that purpose. Colossians 1 verse 16, for by him, him, the context starting at verse 13 reads that this him is Jesus, for by Jesus all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him, Jesus, and for him, meaning Jesus. And that means all things were created for his purposes. Revelation 4 verse 11 reads, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And all things includes us. You created all things and by your will, and in the Greek language, this word translated as will can also be translated as purpose. For you created all things and by your purpose, they, meaning all things including us, exist and were created. The fact we're alive means that God has a purpose for us. God has a reason for our existence. No of, none of us are an accident. God doesn't just do something to do something. God has a specific purpose in doing something. There is nothing that God created that doesn't have its purpose, and especially that is true of human beings. Purposes are so varied from person to person. In a more public sense, someone's purpose could be, could be to become a an elite professional athlete, someone receiving massive media attention, someone earning multiple millions of dollars. Or in a more private sense, someone's purpose could be to become an unpaid and often underappreciated mother and homemaker and raise Christ-centric children that as adults could make a significant societal difference. And that's huge because 74% of children raised in the church walk away from the church and sometimes Christianity itself after graduation from high school. Don't ever discount motherhood. Someone's purpose could be completely unrelated to their career or profession. Some people use off hours and spare time to fulfill their true and most meaningful purpose. Some of them volunteer at the crisis, Community Crisis Pregnancy Center. Some of them volunteer to help conservative political causes. One of our friends in Kansas City, she was an executive assistant at a large corporation. And she did that. But she spent spare time directing one of the largest children's programs, an Awana program in the Midwest. And that was her true purpose, she would argue. Purposes are varied from person to person to person. We once purchased a car from a dealer, not a new car, a low-mileage, previously-enjoyed vehicle, and uh, as we would rather have someone else pay for that car's depreciation. And uh, we purchased this car, and we applied for a car loan at that dealership. So we sat in this finance person's office to go over all the financial specifics and sign all these boring forms and papers. But this man that did all this financial stuff was most unusual. He had amazing personal charisma. I mean, he was just magnetism, so attractive. He was so entertaining. He had us busting up laughing the entire time. And before we left, I mentioned to him, I thanked him, and I said that he had actually made signing all that paperwork something enjoyable. And he said to me, I was made to do this job. He did that job 
and did it so well because he wanted people to feel good about their experience at that dealership. That was his purpose. There are different purposes for different people. And no matter how seemingly insignificant or obscure is someone's purpose, all God's purposes are honorable. Becoming an underboss in an organized crime family is not a God-ordained purpose because all God's purposes are honorable. But no matter what our particular purpose is, no matter what we do, there is still one ultimate purpose that God has that is applicable to all of us. And that's our emphasis in the remainder of this message. All of us that are related to Jesus Christ have this same overriding, ultimate God-ordained purpose. And it's something we sometimes tend to forget. The Westminster Short, Shorter Catechism is a catechism written in 1646 and 1647 by the Westminster Assembly. The assembly was a synod, a synod or council of English and Scottish theologians intended to bring the Church of England into greater conformity with the Church of Scotland. A catechism, if catechism is an unfamiliar word, is a method of teaching that uses questions and answers. Questions and answers. That particular Westminster Shorter Catechism is composed of 107 questions and answers. 107 of them. The most famous of those questions is the first question. Notice, question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Paraphrases, what is man's ultimate objective? Answer to that question. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the reason we were created. And the reason we aren't an accident. We exist to glorify God. And in doing that, we can enjoy Him forever. God's glory exists in two different forms. His intrinsic glory and His indicated glory. Don't miss these. Notice the definition. God's intrinsic glory is the sum total of all His attributes as God. God's intrinsic glory is the sum total the totality of all his attributes or characteristics as God. Notice Psalm 24, verse 10. Who is this king of glory? Who is he? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. That word selah is found 71 times throughout the Psalms. Often reading the Psalms, we see this word selah. Selah is found three times in the book of Habakkuk. It's only used in those instances throughout all Scripture. Its etymology and exact meaning are unknown. But one idea that is proposed is that selah means pause. Pause. Most of us have electronic instruments that have a pause button. Pause as in a musical score. Or pause as in reading a text. Um, causing it to mean stop. If we're reading something, stop, pause, and really consider this. So in using Selah, the psalmist has instructed us to pause and consider that God is himself the king of intrinsic glory. God's intrinsic glory is all that he is. 
that makes him who he is as God. Some of his attributes, and I did an entire series on divine attributes. Some of his attributes are his eternal nature, meaning God is self-existent. He had no beginning and he has no ending. Another attribute is his omniscience, meaning that God knows all that there is to know. God knows what is, and God knows what could be and isn't. Another attribute is his omnipotence, meaning God has all power. And on and on and on. We cannot give, don't miss this, we cannot give God intrinsic glory. Because that intrinsic glory is already his by virtue of who he is as God. And remember, God does not share that intrinsic glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. There's a graphic example of where someone attempted to steal some of that intrinsic glory from God, and it didn't end well. Notice Acts 12, starting at verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. This was Herod Agrippa I. He was probably in his mid-40s at this time. He was the grandson of the diabolical Herod the Great. And this Herod, Herod I, wasn't a good man. Earlier on, he had James, who was one of the 12 original apostles. Remember the brothers James and John? James had become one of the pastors at the Jerusalem church. Herod had earlier had James executed. So James became the first apostle to die as a martyr. And the setting here is this was a festival intended to honor the Roman emperor Claudius. And Herod could have been the master of ceremonies at this festival. We aren't sure. We do know, though, from the famous Jewish historian Josephus, that Herod wore a robe to this occasion made entirely from silver. And as he sat in that arena, the sun reflected off that robe and created an extremely bright, almost blinding light. Then Herod stood to his feet and gave a speech to all the people that had congregated together. And it must have been an incredible speech because notice the people's reaction to what he said. Verse 22, and the people kept shouting. This is continuous. The people kept shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Notice the people in mass continued to shout that Herod must be a God or God and not a man. And the context implies that Herod stood there, heard that, and accepted that praise. He made no effort to silence the people. He made no effort to correct them. He, he should have told them, no, 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 I am not God. There's just one God and I am not him. That didn't happen. Instead, Herod let them continue to address him as if he were God. Verse 23, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. See, God is a jealous God. He doesn't share his intrinsic glory. So God heard this, and he could see that Herod wasn't correcting the people, 
and silencing them. So God immediately sent one of his angels, and that angel struck him. Why? Notice, because he did not give glory to God. He did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. In this case, in accepting the praise from the people as if he were God, Herod stole some of that intrinsic glory that is God's and God's alone. And because of that theft, God executed him. Worms ate his internal organs until he died. Josephus said after the angel struck him, that Herod suffered agonizing, excruciating pain for five consecutive days before he died. The moral of that story is don't mess with God. Notice the second definition. There's another form of glory, God's indicated glory. God's indicated glory is the glory that we attribute to him as God. This is the glory we attribute to God as God. Notice the definition, and this definition is mine. I'm sure there are better ones. Glorifying God in an indicated sense is all that I am bringing attention and amplification to all that he is and does as God. In an indicated sense, glorifying God is all that I am bringing attention and amplification to all that he is and does as God. It is the same as extolling God. Praising God, bragging on God, honoring God, worshiping God, giving credit to God. It is the same as making a big deal about God. The classic verse on indicated glory is found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, this eating and drinking represents the normal activities we all go through, we all participate in eating and drinking. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that is an all-inclusive statement, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, meaning indicated glory. God has assigned to each person a particular and unique purpose, but that purpose as important as that purpose is, is subordinate to the ultimate purpose because the ultimate and overall divine purpose is that we were created to glorify God in all that we are and in all that we do. One of Billy Graham's children is Anne Graham Watts. She's an author, speaker, and she made this statement, quote, our ultimate aim in life is not to be healthier, wealthier, prosperous, or problem-free. Our ultimate aim is to bring glory to God. That's indicated glory. One of the greatest examples of that happened just this past Friday night. And and this is so recent, I had to make serious last-minute adjustments and changes to this message. I just felt like I needed to share this. For those that do not know, the... World Track and Field Championships were just held in Eugene, Oregon. Ten days of competition. Tonight is the last night of competition. Um, I'm happy to say that the U.S. has killed it. I mean, we've done incredible things. Um, This is the first time those games have been held on U.S. soil. Eugene, Oregon is called Track Town USA because it's so famous for all the elite track and field competitions that are held there. 
I realize some people are not into athletic sports, and that's fine. That is their prerogative. But there is biblical justification for them. Paul alludes to boxing, wrestling. Paul mentions running a race multiple times. The race that most people were anticipating at Eugene was the women's 400-meter hurdles. 400 meters is one lap around the track. In round numbers, one-fourth of a mile. And then, since this includes hurdles, there are 10 rows of hurdles situated at equal distances around the track. So it's not running a flat 400 meters. It is running 400 meters plus jumping over hurdles. Um, It is considered a sprint, the longest sprint that there is. Um, It is a brutal, brutal race. Those athletes that run the 400 meters, either flat 400 or 400 meter hurdles, all have a high tolerance to pain. It is an extremely painful race. And this was the most anticipated race because an American athlete named Sidney McLaughlin was the race favorite. Sydney's just 22. And she's one of the greatest female athletes this nation has ever seen. What Michael Jordan did to basketball, Cindy McLaughlin is doing to women's track. I'm a huge fan. I have followed Sydney probably since 2019, 2020. And I'm a fan not just for her athleticism, as we will mention in a moment. She is the 2020 Tokyo Olympic gold medalist, and she is the current world record holder. She was the first woman to run the 400-meter hurdles under 52 seconds. I'm assuming that if any of us tried it, we we probably wouldn't do it in three minutes. Um, Seriously, if we could make it. Um, 52 seconds. And then on Friday night, she did the unthinkable. I mean unthinkable. People are going nuts. She became the first woman to run the 400-meter hurdles under 51 seconds. She ran 50.68 seconds, which beat her personal previous world record best, some three-fourths of a second. That's amazing. She so dominated the field that the silver medalist from the Netherlands was almost two full seconds behind her. I mean, it's on the YouTube. Watch it. it. It's amazing. Some are calling it the greatest race of all time. Some are social media are arguing that Sydney isn't human, that she's superhuman, Someone called her a track god. Not unlike the crowd's response to Herod we mentioned earlier. Sydney, though, completely discredited those arguments. In her first interview, just minutes after the race had been concluded, still on the track after the race, someone was there to interview her. Sydney is a sincere Christian young woman, and she is determined to glorify God. She's married to a former NFL player, just married months ago, also a committed Christian. And this man conducting the interview asked her how she was able to smash her former record and how she was able to run such an incredible race. The most common response to that question from most athletes is, I just learned to believe in myself. I just believe in myself. That's that's how I did it. I've heard that so often it's nauseating to hear. That's not how Sydney 
responded to that question. I'm quoting this verbatim. She said, I have to start off by saying, all glory to God. These past few days getting ready for this race, Hebrews 4.16 has been on my mind, coming boldly to his throne to receive mercy and grace. He really gave me the strength to do it today, so all the glory goes to God. And then she continued in saying multiple times how grateful she was. She said twice how super grateful she was for that record performance. And then there was a, another interview. The three of them, the medal winners, were on, on, a, on a panel inside. And she just continued with humble answers and continued telling people, it's not about me. I, I run to God to give God glory. That's glorifying God. I'm so grateful that she has assumed that posture I praise God for her, and I hope she continues to race and continues to win. I need to add a postscript to this message. Some of you were here this past Sunday morning. Some of those that weren't here have seen this online, and I realize others have not heard this. This past Sunday, I did something I have never done before. I used an extensive, extensive closing illustration about a young woman, wife, mother, and nurse, named Yvette Garcia Biggerstaff. There are three families in our congregation from California and our former congregation that knew Yvette and her parents, Ed and Zulema Garcia, and um, Hopi and I, Bill and Barbara Farrar, and Steve and Emma Cortez. Yvette has been on our prayer sheet for almost seven months. She was a victim of COVID and the tragic complications that COVID caused. And I did something in that message from last time. I I literally spent 13 minutes describing all that Yvette had suffered. That message is still on our website. And if you haven't seen it, you might watch that. As of this past Sunday morning, Yvette had been in the hospital a total of 204 consecutive days. She had been on a complex lung bypass life support apparatus called ECMO. She had been on ECMO longer than anyone else in the United States. She had been progressing, but the ups and downs had been dramatic. It was a roller coaster on steroids. The doctors had determined that in order to survive, she would need a heart and double lung transplant. Imagine that, a heart and double lung transplant. And in order to be eligible to even receive a transplant, to be able to go on a list Uh, for those organs. Um, She had to be able to walk a thousand feet, equivalent to a thousand steps, and she hadn't even been able to take a first step. She had been able to shuffle her feet some, but but, but not even one step at that juncture. The prognosis wasn't as optimistic as we wanted to hear, but at least there was hope. There was hope. God had rescued her from certain death multiple times during these past seven months. So we have been praying and praying that God would continue to heal her. I told her mother, other than one exception, I've never prayed for anyone ever with more intensity, with more consistency, and as long as I did for Yvette. I I mean, I was crying out to God continually throughout the day for Yvette. And uh, we, we would pray that God would heal her. And then... This past Monday, literally just 25 hours 
after I preached that sermon, Yvette started hemorrhaging. The medical team tried and tried and tried, but couldn't stop the internal bleeding. And then I received this text from Zulema via Barbara. The text read, The Lord called my baby home at 210. She's singing praises to him with her new lungs. Yvette had a beautiful voice, and she's Heaven's Choir's newest addition. I was on 395 and 580 driving to a doctor's appointment in Reno. I happened to notice a text. I picked up my phone, read that short text, and immediately I had to pull off the highway in order to regain enough composure to continue. And even still, when I walked into the doctor's office, my eyes were bloodshot from tears. And to be completely transparent, I still haven't recovered. And Hopi and I are devastated. It just hasn't sunk in. And yes, God did answer us. He did heal Yvette. He healed her completely the moment he brought her home to himself. If it were possible, and it isn't, if it were possible, though, I wouldn't retrieve Yvette from heaven and deprive her of all the incredible happiness she is experiencing at this moment. That would be cruel. Trust me, Yvette doesn't want to rejoin us. Yvette wants us to join her. But we are so saddened for her parents, Ed and Zulema, her husband Tim, and her girls Phoenix age five and Briar just seven months. This is the picture from last time. Yvette, prior to COVID, in her uniform, her nursing uniform. This is Yvette and her mother, beautiful ladies. Um, this is Yvette and her father. I've never had a daughter, so I can't imagine the hurt in his heart. And this is the picture Zulema posted on Facebook when she announced Yvette had passed. She's on a zip line, and that was Yvette, a beautiful young woman, age 32. She had an incredible smile, and she could laugh like no one else. She was full of sunshine and life. Yvette was part of Barbara's worship team before Barbara moved here. Because of the worship team's Bible studies and rehearsals together, Barbara and Yvette became extremely close. Barbara would throw a song at her, a new song on a Thursday night, ask Yvette to sing lead, and Barbara would harmonize, and Yvette would just smile and say, okay, let's do it. And Barbara said, oh, how Yvette could sing. Barbara said singing with Yvette felt like singing with her own daughter. The fact is Barbara will laugh and sing together with Yvette again. It could be soon, and this time it will be forever. Yvette glorified God throughout her sickness and hospitalization. She was a consistent testimony to the nurses and doctors, and numbers of them knew her because she was employed there as a nurse. And her life, even through her suffering, so impacted them. And if Yvette couldn't communicate, and that often was the case, the doctors would come to Zulema, scratching their heads after something unexplainable had just happened and confess, we don't understand it. She shouldn't have survived that procedure. She shouldn't have made it through the night. How did she survive that episode? We don't understand it. And Zulema would respond, I understand how that happened. Lots of people are praying, 
And God is answering those prayers. Yvette was committed to nursing. She was one semester away from graduating with a master's degree to become a nurse practitioner. In 2020, at the beginning of COVID, she spent three months caring for COVID patients in New York City, the mecca of the pandemic. She loved to help hurting people. She had found her purpose. And Yvette had also found her greater purpose. Yvette glorified God in life, and she will glorify God in death. The question is, can that same thing be said about us? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Would you bow your heads with me? Our heads are bowed. Father in heaven, I'm saddened today. This has been a difficult week. After the announcement we received Monday afternoon, I understand the psalmist said in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And I'm sure that Yvette's passing is so precious to you, but we have mixed emotions. We couldn't be happier for her because she's no longer suffering, and she suffered so much, and she had so much more suffering to face. But we are saddened for those that are left. Goodbyes are hard, so hard, especially the ones we love so much. And so, Father, my prayer today would go out to Ed and Zulema, who've lost their daughter. I can't imagine the hole in their heart. I pray, God, you would fill that hole with your love and comfort. And through all of this, encourage them. And know that her life and her death are not in vain. And Father, I pray for her husband, Tim, and her two little girls. This is going to be hard, but God help them, sustain them, see them through this, this difficult time. I'm grateful for the opportunity I had to be Yvette's pastor for so long. She was a blessing to me, and the Garcias were a blessing to my family. God, wrap your arms of love around them, would you? And squeeze them tight. And let them know that you're too kind to ever be cruel. You're too wise to ever make a mistake. And this was all part of your plan and your purpose for Yvette. So we commit that to you. And I ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.